morning. Good afternoon. Or good evening. We don't discriminate. Time is but a button on the microwave. <laughs> we are back this week, still riding the high from how well-received episode one was, despite the minor technical difficulties. Editing is hard, but with anything, you've got to be shitty before you can be good. That really didn't stop the rave reviews. At Sari Cronenbold said, I think this is a beautifully sounding podcast, and it's just episode number one. It's funny, inclusive to peers, age-appropriate, and unlike anything I've listened to before. Please, compliment me more. <laughs> At M. New said, Chase's voice is so soothing, like I want them to read me a bedtime story. Also, are you and Chase sleeping together? I would like to just take this time to address these allegations. Yes. Yes, we are. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> okay. <laughs> would you listen to some bedtime stories read by Chase? Because I have now added that to my pre-bed ritual. Go the fuck to sleep. <laughs> At JB Hells said, dude, this is so awesome. Congratulations. Good fucking job. I like that y'all had a game plan and it wasn't just some meandering conversation like a lot of other podcasts. We appreciate that. We put a lot of time into researching this. Bailey Lynn said, oh my god, the queers have eyes is my new favorite thing. I'm old. She's not old. <laughs> so I'm currently sending your Spotify page to everyone I know via text. At least it's not email. I'm so excited for you. Bailey, we're glad that you have stepped out of the Stone Age from email and made it to texting. <laughs> if you would like your opinion featured on a future episode of The Queers Have Eyes, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at The Queers Have Eyes, Twitter at Queers Have Eyes, on our Facebook page, The Queers Have Eyes, or by email, queershaveeyes at gmail.com. We went hard with the branding. We love our title. <laughs> And hopefully, I will get unbanned on TikTok soon, and you can reach us there. If you don't want to share your opinion, we would just love a follow. Let's jump into some LGBTQ history. On December 10th of 1924, what are we talking about there, Chase? All right, so what we are talking about is the formation of the Society for Human Rights. An American gay rights organization established in Chicago on December 10th, 1924. Right and here in Chicago? Right here. In this spot. In Whoa. this apartment. I guess he was poor. <laughs> it was founded by Henry Gerber. Henry Gerber immigrated from Imperial Germany in 1913, settling with his family in Chicago because of its large German-speaking population. That explains all the sausages. <laughs> Within a few years of his arrival, he experienced discrimination based on his sexual orientation when he was temporarily committed to a mental institution in 1917 for being homosexual. Man, the vacation of going to a mental institution. I can go just because I'm gay? They let anybody in there. The <laughs> snacks are okay. I, uh, I'm not sure it was as much of a vacation in 1917 uh, with all of the electroshock therapy and... Mm -hmm. um, Horrible treatment, I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> With the United States entry into World War I, Gerber enlisted in the United States Army. After the war, he served as a printer and proofreader with the Allied Army of Occupation in Koblenz, Germany. Did I pronounce that right? I don't know. 
I sure don't know. From 1920 to 1923. During his time there, Gerber learned about Magnus Hirschfeld and the work he was doing with the Scientific Humanitarian Committee um, to reform anti-homosexual German law, especially paragraph 175, which criminalized sex between men. Gerber traveled to Berlin, which supported a thriving gay subculture on several occasions and subscribed to at least one homophile magazine. The podcast of the past. Gerber marveled at the development of the gay community in Berlin and later wrote, I had always bitterly felt the injustice with which my own American society accused the homosexual of immoral acts. What could be done about it, I thought. Unlike Germany, where the homosexual was partially organized and where sex legislation was uniform for the whole country, the United States was in a condition of chaos and misunderstanding concerning its sex laws, and no one was trying to unravel the tangle and bring relief to the abused. Inspired by Officer Coaster's work with the Scientific Humanitarian Committee and the Bund für Menschenrecht. Menschenrecht in Berlin, Gerber resolved to found a similar organization in the United States. He called his group the Society for Human Rights, which is a translation of the thing I can't pronounce. Gerber filed an application for charter as a nonprofit organization with the state of Illinois on December 10, 1924. The application outlined the goals and purposes of the society. To promote and protect the interests of people who, by reasons of mental and physical abnormalities, are abused and hindered in the legal pursuit of happiness, which is guaranteed them by the Declaration of Independence, and to combat the public prejudices against them by dissemination of factors according to modern science among intellectuals of mature age. The society stands only for law and order. It is in harmony with any and all general laws insofar as they protect the rights of others and does in no manner recommend any acts of violation of present laws nor advocate any manner inimical to the public welfare. Whereas the Queers Have Eyes does advocate for violation of present laws. The state granted the charter on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1924, making the society the oldest documented homosexual organization in the nation. Despite deliberately keeping the goals of the society vague and excluding any mention of homosexuality from its mission statement, society members were still surprised that no one with the state investigated any further before issuing the charter. The society's newsletter, Friendship and Freedom, which is a baller-ass name, was the first gay interest publication in the United States. However, few society members were willing to receive mailings of the newsletter, fearing that postal inspectors would deem the publication obscene under the Comstock Act. Thank the universe for Pornhub. All gay interest publications were deemed obscene until 1958, when the Supreme Court ruled in One Inc. v. Olison that publishing homosexual content did not mean the content was automatically obscene. Two issues of Friendship and Freedom were written and produced entirely by Gerber, but no copies of the newsletter are known to exist. If you do own a copy, please let us know. We would love to read it. Gerber formulated a three-point strategy for winning what he referred to as homosexual emancipation. One, engage in a series of lectures pointing out the attitude of society in relation to their own behavior and especially urging against the seduction of adolescents. That's right, we do not sleep with teenagers. Yeah, looking at you, Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> Two, through a publication, we would keep the homophile world in touch with the progress of our efforts. We're going to let them know. I feel that. And the world will know. And the world turned upside down. <laughs> Three, through self-discipline, homophiles would win the confidence and assistance of legal authorities and legislators in understanding the problem that these authorities should be educated on the futility and folly of long prison terms for those committing homosexual acts. Dude, if I went to prison for having gay sex... You would just have more gay sex? Oh, you're right. <laughs> 
Gerber set out to expand the society's membership beyond the original seven, but had difficulty interesting anyone other than poorer gays in joining. He was also unable to gain any financial support from the more affluent members of Chicago's gay community. Side note, Chicago's gay community, still full of a bunch of stingy assholes. <laughs> Gerber sought out the support of people in the medical professions and sex education advocates and was frustrated when he was unable to secure it because of their fear of ruining their reputations through the association with homosexuality. Contemplating this failure in 1962, Gerber stated, The first difficulty was in rounding up enough members and contributors so the work could go forward. The average homosexual I found was ignorant concerning himself. Others were fearful. Still, others were frantic or depraved. Some were blasé. Many homosexuals told me that their search for forbidden fruit was the real spice of life. With this argument, they rejected our aims. We wondered how we could accomplish anything with such resistance from our own people. Actually, the real spice of life... Nutmeg. Chase is a baker. Chase nutted. Continue. <laughs> Members of the board decided to limit society members to gay men and exclude bisexuals. Unknown to them, the society's vice president, Al Weininger. Weininger, a man Gerber described as an indignant laundry queen, was married with two children. I'm glad to know we've been reading each other for filth since the 1920s. It's comforting. <laughs> Weininger's wife reported the society to a social worker in the summer of 1925, calling them degenerates and making claims of strange doings in front of their children. Which really just makes me think they were doing like sock puppet shows. That's too much. That's too much. We can't let the children know that the gays exist. Can't let them get a hold of our socks. Those indignant laundry queens. The police broke in on Gerber in the middle of the night with a reporter from the Chicago Examiner in tow. They interrogated him, seized his personal papers, and arrested him. The next morning, Gerber arrived in court to learn that John T. Graves, the president of the society, Weininger, and Weininger's male companion had also been arrested. It's illegal to be gay. The Examiner reported the story under the headline, Strange Sex Cult Exposed. The paper erroneously reported that Weininger and other members of the society had performed sex acts in front of Weininger's children, and that society literature encouraged men to abandon their wives and children. This latter statement was in direct contradiction to the society's policy of only admitting men who were exclusively homosexual. Gerber was put through three separate trials before charges against him were finally dismissed because... He was arrested without a warrant. The Society for Human Rights served as a direct link between the LGBTQ-related activism of the American homophile movement in the 1950s and eventually the founding of the Matashin Society, the first enduring LGBTQ rights organization in the United States. So we're saying it's it took about... 25 years before the gays decided to unite in the United States and finally start doing something about living in the closet and having to hide themselves. They're scared. Or maybe lazy. I'm definitely lazy, so I get yeah. that. But yeah, I'm la I'm I think you can only beat someone down so much. <laughs> you can only beat someone off so much. <laughs> Richard <true>. Stewart. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of our history lesson. Did you learn anything? I did. I learned that the gays are scared and it takes them 25 years to unite. They've got to quit all the caddy fighting and become one unit. Or join forces with the caddy fighting. Ooh. Become like a caddy that what would the they become a thing and they're in spandex and it's actually pretty straight. 
Are you talking about cats? No. I said it's actually pretty straight. <laughs> I'm clearly not talking about cats. Power Rangers. That's it. Are the Power Rangers cats? Okay, so that's the end of that. <laughs> Richard has completely lost the thread. Next, we're moving on to horror news. Get it together, Richard. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They're all together, ooky, the Adams family. Rumors are flying this week that we may get a spinoff from Netflix's hit show, Wednesday. Though that's all it is now, rumors, I'm very excited at the idea of more Fred Armisen as Fester. Season 1 of Wednesday, starring Jenna Ortega as the title character, only used Fred for one episode. But it appears that the fans want more, and so do I. Until more information is released, we will just have to get excited that filming for Season 2 of Wednesday starts in Ireland in April 2024. Reports have indicated we should see more Adams family members, and Ortega, who is a producer on the show, says the new episodes will emphasize more horror elements and less romantic angles. And I'm always down for more horror. Use your demons. Don't let them use you. It appears I have another reason to hold on to my Shudder subscription that's not the horror drag competition Dragula, which I look forward to every fall and winter. Destroy All Humans has dropped a new trailer that is full of gore, heavy metal, and insanity. The horror comedy is set to release January 12th, 2024, and follows William Brown, played by Jonah Ray Rodriguez, who is a neurotic musician that is experiencing writer's block, and allows his demons to get in his head and turn him into a guitar-wielding killer, starting with his loud, disgusting neighbor, Vlad, played by Alex Winter. <laughs> Lena Clamour first shocked audiences in 2009 in Orphan, directed by Jean-Colette Serra, starring Isabel Furman. This week, director of the 2019 prequel Orphan First Kill said, We're developing a third one now. The franchise's rulebook has been opened up to where anything is possible. Knowing where we are in the process already, I'm extremely excited about the twists and turns we have in store. How you beat the twist of the original where you find out an adult with dwarfism is pretending to be a child, I will have to see to believe. Orphan tells the story of Lena Clamor, or is it Esther Morova, who is supposed to be a nine-year-old orphan that is adopted by Kate and John Coleman. Kate gets a weird feeling about the child and digs deeper into her troubled and mysterious history to discover that she may not be what she seems to be. The twist in this film is something that still has me reeling 14 years later, and I'm very excited to see where this installment goes. Universal Studios may be opening Dracula's Coffin again. The next entry in the legendary lineup of monster films from Universal Studios this week wrapped production and is aiming for an April 19th, 2024 theatrical release. The feature, which has no title, but is rumored to be called Dracula's Daughter, is directed by Matt Bettinelli-Olpen and Tyler Gillette of the Scream and Scream 6 franchise. From a screenplay by Stephen Shields. The cast includes Melissa Barrera from the reboot of Scream, child star Alicia Weir, who played Matilda Wormwood in the movie musical Matilda, Dan Stevens, a hottie best known for dying in an automobile accident in Downton Abbey, and Angus Cloud, who wrapped all of his scenes before his untimely death in July 2023. R.I.P., dude. 
No plot details have been revealed, but the film reportedly will feature a unique take on a legendary monster lore, and will follow a group of kidnappers who regret their actions when they learn one of the teens they grabbed is the offspring of a bloodthirsty count. Although I'm sure the real regret comes from having to hang out with a teenager. MCR said it best when they said, Teenagers scare the living shit out of me! And that's all I have for this week. We will, of course, do our best to keep you up to date with these and all other exciting horror-related things that go bump in the night. It's weird that you know Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey, because I, like, only know him from Eurovision, the movie with Rachel McAdams. He plays a gay Russian who swears he's not gay, even though he's got statues of himself with his dick out all over his mansion. <laughs> and uh, Why haven't I seen this film? Why haven't you seen this film? I don't know. He's like, there's no gays in Russia. And Rachel McAdams is like, that's statistically impossible. Are you like non-binary? And he's like, no, no, no. He, him. He, him. <laughs> well, um, I think maybe we should go into our queer icon so we can prove that there has been at least one gay in Russia. Our queer icon of the week is Lance Bass. All right, Richard, why do we love Lance Bass? Well, actually, we have 11 reasons why we love Lance Bass. One, he was a member of NSYNC. Fucking love NSYNC. If you don't know who Lance Bass and NSYNC are, um, what is the name of the rock you've been living under? Steve. (laughs) James Lance Bass is an American singer, dancer, actor, podcaster, what? Film and television producer, most notably known for being a member of teen crush boy band NSYNC. Although- Who was your crush? You know, before Britney Spears released her book, it was Justin Timberlake. I'm sorry. I'm trash. But uh, I've always had a thing for Lance Bass. Who was yours? Well, Lance Bass was always, like, my number two. But number one, Joey Fatone, who is an honorary gay icon because he's not gay, but he is gay for pay because he was gay in the amazing My Big Fat Greek Wedding series. Ooh, we love. We love gay for pay. I'm gay for pay if you'd like to hire me. (laughs) Um, So it turns out that Lance Bass actually wasn't an original band member of NSYNC. Shut the fuck up. No, I didn't know this, but I found out um, he actually replaced Jason Galasso. Jason uh, Galoozer. Who decided he didn't want to be a pop star and became a mortgage broker. Oh, I bet that's fun. Um, But the name in sync comes from the last letter of each of the founding members' first name. We've got Justin for the N, Chris for the S, Joey for the Y, Jason for the N, and then JC for the C. Um, To keep that name (laughs) accurate, they did nickname Lance Lanston. Nailed it, guys. (laughs) Um, Also, in my research, I found out that NSYNC's 2000 record No Strings Attached sold 1.1 million copies in its first day and became the fastest-selling album of all time. I was a part of that. I I was not. Actually, I got the cassette. I wonder Mm. if that counted. I think it probably went into the sales. Yeah. Okay. Um, I also found out that Lance Bass and Britney Spears are sixth cousins once removed. Um, What does that mean? Um, I don't know. Uh, genealogy is really hard. I I try to figure this out all the time, and it's really tough. The once, twice, three times removed thing is very interesting. But he didn't find a, that out until 2021 when he was on Ancestry's Two Lies and a Leaf podcast. Number two. Number two. 
Lance Bass played Corny Collins in Hairspray on Broadway, which is dope. Um, Hairspray is my favorite musical of all time. You're not allowed to judge me for that. I don't care. Number three, Lance is a certified cosmonaut. That explains why his voice is so heavenly. That's right. Um, Lance did undergo training in Star City, Russia. He became a certified cosmonaut and was certified by both Russian Space Program and NASA for a mission that unfortunately was last minute canceled for for Bass because his Hollywood financiers withdrew their money of $20 million. Fucking Hollywood financiers. (laughs) Bitches. That's not. Bitches. Should I? Mm-hmm. Should I say that? Mm-hmm. No, we're going to say. They're bitches. You heard me. <laughs> you heard me. Um, unless you're willing to donate your money to this podcast, and then we love you. Number four, Lance publicly came out in 2006, which I remember. I remember it was on every single magazine cover. Yes, it was. So he did date a an amazing race star that was really fucking hot and had a really healthy relationship with him, but it only lasted a couple months. Which is fine, because that did lead to Lance meeting his now husband in 2011 at a friend's birthday celebration in Palm Springs. They uh, they started by keeping their relationship platonic um, and were just friends. Heard that one before? Yeah. My dad did always say that you should marry your best friend. So I guess that's why their marriage is working out. Uh, they did get engaged in September 2013. And then got married today, December 20th, in 2014. Woo! Happy anniversary, Lance! Happy anniversary, boys. The couple became fathers in 2021 through surrogacy with a set of twins after their 10th attempt. And they really wanted those kids. But with their marriage brings us number five, which is... He and his husband became the first gay couple to exchange vows on cable TV. That's so iconic. Yeah, that's the coolest shit I've ever heard. No one else can say that. Only Lance Bass can say that and his husband. Like, that's it. It didn't air until February 14th, I think, maybe, of that year. But that's still cool as hell. Uh, Number six, he was awarded the Human Rights Campaign Visibility Award in 2006. Which, from what I understand, people were real dicks about. They were... The Washington Blade printed a guest editorial from a longtime human rights campaign supporter who claimed that Lance hadn't done enough to deserve the award and that the human rights campaign was simply capitalizing on Bass's fame to sell tickets. It's a visibility award. (laughs) (laughs) I remember it from magazines. That's right. Uh. The HRC did stand by Bass and defend him, saying Bass is the biggest music star since Melissa Etheridge to come out. And maybe some people think HRC should just ignore these moments of cultural significance, but his declaration did initiate a positive national conversation that continues today. He was in a boy band, so it wasn't like a surprise. No. (laughs) I'm surprised that more of them aren't gay. I'm so surprised that more of them aren't gay. Oh my god. I've never thought about that. They probably are. We'll we'll find out. I will specifically find out. (laughs) Find it out for us. Richard undercover. Richard Um, under... Boy band covers. Ooh, put me under those boy band covers. Uh, number seven, Lance did start the Lance Bass Foundation, which is an organization that covers healthcare costs for low-income children. That's really fucking sweet. Take care of the children. I believe the children are the future. That's like kind of a nothing statement. 
That's true. Yeah. Be, like, they are, like, they are. They are. Yeah. Be, I believe be. the toilet is my future. Because <laughs> I will probably go there one day. Someday. Are we rambling? Yeah. Did we now become the podcast ramblers? Yeah, we're doing it. Ramble on. Uh, number eight. Eight. Lance is an animal lover. In 2007, he posted with his two rescue dogs in a PETA ad and encourages people to adopt and not buy pets. Adopt. Don't shop. Number nine, his charity work is prolific. He donated $30,000 to the Amber Pulliam Special Education Endowment, named after his younger cousin, which provides financial aid to people pursuing careers in special education. Yeah, but that's not all he's done, because number 10 is he's also involved in fundraising for the Gay Lesbian Straight Network, Animal Avenger, Boys and Girls Club of America, Brett Favre Forward Foundation, Cancer for College, Elton John AIDS Foundation, International Medical Corp, Lisa's Place, Love Our Children USA, Maddie's Fund, Souls for Souls, SPCA, Stomp Out Bullying, The Thirst Project, and The Trevor Project. And I'm glad that's it, because I'm out of breath. It's a lot of places to put your money. So... Though I do believe we should eat the rich, I do stand a rich person who donates their money to good causes. Which brings us to number 11. Lance Bass is super hot. So fucking hot. And if he'd ever like to travel to my studio apartment, our 30 fans would be delighted. Because you know how targeted advertisements work. I did see a video of Lance Bass. The um, Furby thing? Yes, he's advertising for Furbies, but he has purple hair and that's hot. I was watching the InSync Hot Ones, and he is, he's held up the best by far of all oh these men. God. He's still beautiful. It's crazy. Everyone else looks like 20 busted pieces of chicken. <laughs> Lance Bass, who is your doctor? Please let me know. Not that I can afford him. Yet. But if you're straining yourself to look that beautiful, just know we'd love you either way. And for that, Lance Bass is an icon, and we here at the Queers Have Eyes salute you. Happy anniversary. We've covered... Queer history, horror news, and hottie Lance Bass. Chase, I think it's time for you to give the people your summary. All right. I am going to lay it all out. If you haven't seen the movie, that's fine. I'm going to give you a very accurate description. If you have seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. You know. We open on a sorority house. Everyone's gone home for the holidays except 20,000 interchangeable women who are drinking and sniping at each other in the common room. Upstairs, we find Claire struggling to write a 10-word Christmas card. Suddenly, a rustle in the closet. Claire checks on the noise but decides it's nothing. It is nothing because the killer is under the bed with a bag. After a half-hearted attempt to suffocate Claire, the killer stabs her in the brain through the eye. 2.40 in and we've got one of an infinite number of women down. Meanwhile, at the criminally insane ward, you know the one, an orderly drops a carton of milk in a door jam. Sir, you dropped the milk. Sir. Leaving an opening for the security guard to tell Santa Claus the backstory of Billy Lunds, our spree killer hero. Oh, villain. He killed his family on Christmas and tries to escape every year. Outside the sorority house, our protag Kelly is saying goodbye to her boyfriend Kyle. He doesn't want her to go and is being really manipulative about it. Kelly wants to spend time with her new family, the sorority sisters, before they leave and she says she'll see him tomorrow. He says, I'm your family now. I'm your family. Red flag. Setting up a red herring that falls flatter than my voice, considering we've already seen two killers and neither are him. Inside, one of the women, I'd be more specific but I can't, wonders where Claire is. One thinks she's upstairs writing a Christmas card to her sister. Another says no, she went home this morning. And the first girl decides the second girl is right, which blows my mind. Back at the asylum, Billy sharpens a candy cane. Mm, 
that the candy cane is a weapon. And passes the guard a note that says, I'll be home for Christmas. The guard reads the note and looks through a tiny slot in the door but can't see Billy, which isn't surprising because you can't see most of the room. Because the guard has forgotten Billy's entire thing, like his whole thing, like his whole MO. He's under the bed, motherfucker. He opens the door to look for Billy but only finds himself getting murdered. It's present time at the house. Kelly calls everyone down for presents, but Sister Megan says, fuck Christmas, and doesn't come, which is actually the name of the sex tape she's watching, starring her and Kelly's boyfriend. Kelly goes downstairs. Then Megan hears footsteps in the attic and goes to check it out. The killer bags her head for no reason and stabs her in the neck. The killer then pulls out her eyeball, which would have been way easier if there wasn't a bag in the way. At the asylum, an orderly hits on Santa, but Billy kills him before he can get some. Billy dons the Santa suit, which we all know makes him the next Santa Claus. While opening presents, it's revealed Heather, the Texan sister, her only defining characteristic, was given Billy for Secret Santa because it's his old house and a long-standing tradition. Heather dropped the ball, tradition broken. From here we see a series of flashback. Billy was a jaundiced baby and his abusive mother really hated that. She also hates his dad, so her and her new fiancé kill him by bagging his head and hammering him in the neck. They buried the dad under the house, but catch Billy watching through a huge hole in the wall under the house. So naturally, the mom and dad race upstairs to put a lock on the attic. Back in the present, Kelly answers a creepy phone call and puts it on speakerphone for all the women to hear. The killer previews later flashbacks and says, I'm going to kill you. Heather says call the police, but the alcoholic sister Lauren accurately predicts they won't help. The Gretchen Wiener sister suggests Star 69, and they learn that the call came from Claire's cell phone, which they immediately forget because hating each other is more fun than self-preservation. Heather stomps off to pack for home, but is stopped by the one nice sister Eve, who gives Heather a glass unicorn for Christmas because Heather, quote, likes the Bible and stuff. She says, you're all like my family now. Another failed red herring because she's clearly just a little bit autistic. Eve walks out the front door and out of the story. Time for another flashback. Billy's shitty mom is fucking his passed out stepdad at the top of the stairs, but gives up because whiskey dick is real. The scene is gross and gratuitous, but not nearly as gross as the next one. Still determined to get off, mom turns her eyes up to the attic where 12-year-old Billy is rocking in a chair innocently. I won't describe what happens next because it's sad and terrible. No, trauma ability 11. 11. 11 oh, is. Oh no. No. But suffice to say, I wish he killed her then. Ooh, I hated that. Oh, that was not good. Ugh, Oedipus. Ugh. <laughs> Flash forward nine months to meet Billy's daughter sister, Agnes. World's worst mom says, you're my family now, exhausting everyone. Back in the living room, the sorority sisters make fun of Eve for being a friendless orphan, and I'm not exaggerating at all. A call comes in, this time from Megan's cell phone. The killer quotes an earlier conversation the girls had, and they realize he's in the house. The women call campus security, but they're taking Christmas off. Kelly and Heather check in Megan's room, but ah, Kyle comes out. He says he climbed through the window to see Kelly, but okay, bud. Also, that he doesn't know if Megan is in there. What? Somehow that leads one of the sisters to the semi-correct conclusion it's Billy Lenz killing them which prompts Kyle to call them stuck-up bitches for going to college in his hometown, question mark? This is really where the movie falls apart. Which brings us to another fucking flashback. 21-year-old Billy gets a telescope for Christmas, but spots a happy family with it and gets triggered. In the living room, Agnes gets a baby doll for Christmas and Mom goes to get some cookies. But Billy is behind the Christmas tree, implying he could have left at any time. Mom gets a call in the kitchen. It's Billy, and he's got Agnes. I guess they have two phone lines. 
Panicked, the parents run to the attic, but Billy isn't in there, so they go back to the living room, where him and Agnes have reappeared in a mind-boggling continuity error. Billy bags Agnes's head and then pulls out her eyeball, when the other way around would have been a way easier. Billy eats the eyeball because of course, and then stabs the stepdad's eye through the back of his skull, which would totally work right at home. Billy then strangles the mom, who totally had it coming, and bakes some Christmas cookies with her skin. The cops show up and find him eating the skin cookies, and that brings us mercifully to the end of the flashbacks. Kyle says no one has seen Agnes since, which finally explains the man they keep showing in a long blonde wig. Kelly and Kyle go into Megan's room to talk. Downstairs, Claire's sister shows up, extremely annoyed that Claire isn't here. She says she's a sorority legacy but can't tell anyone when she was here or anything about the house. Another rotting bloated red herring. We've seen them. We've seen them both. There's a short, convicted murderer with yellow skin and a tall, broad man in a blonde wig, and neither of them are Claire's beautiful, bitchy sister. In Megan's room, Kelly bumps Megan's computer, and the sex tape is still up. She gets angry and says, I can't even believe it's you in this video, which is weird because I can't believe it's not Kelly. The two women are barely distinguishable. Kyle says, it was before you came here, which is a pretty solid reason. Kyle leaves, which is smart, and Melissa takes a too-drunk Lauren to the shower. The power goes out, and Gretchen Wieners checks the fuse box. It's fine, but says there's another one under the house. Claire's sister says, okay, go check it. And Gretchen says, um, no, it's cold. You think I... Is it two seconds? You know where the power the is. daughter of the man who invented toaster <laughs> Lauren takes a shower, not noting that the tiles in the bathroom are coming up, or the holes underneath it. The killer watches her through the hole, but it's not hot because the incest scene killed my libido for possibly ever. Melissa tries to catch Lauren naked, but misses it and just sends Lauren to bed. Gretchen Wieners goes outside to smoke, even though she wouldn't go outside to fix the power. Hey, you know you wanted to go have a cigarette. She's like, it's cold out there. I'm not going out there. And there's a shuffling under the deck. She checks around the corner, and someone's panting under the house. She looks in the crawl space and finds more murder. Kelly gets a call from Gretchen Wiener's cell phone, and Billy imitates her murder. The other girls see Eve's car, and her head falls off when they open the door. They run inside to call the cops, but the power's still off. But wait, it's 2006, and they all have cell phones. Unfortunately, 911 doesn't care that people are being murdered, but also the girls didn't tell them that. Somehow, this makes Mrs. Mack think that it's Billy that's killing them, and Melissa, for no reason, says no, Billy is dead. Be he's definitely alive, I don't know. 911 says they can be there in maybe two hours. They all decide to leave, except for Kelly, who wants to find the others, and Claire's sister, who says she won't leave without Claire. Mrs. Mack and Heather get in the car, but Mrs. Mack gets out again to brush off the window. She clears the window, just enough to see Heather getting murdered by Billy. It shocks her so much that she backs into a wall, which breaks an icicle that stabs her through the head, and I love that. Kelly, Mel, and Claire's sister don't see the car pulling out, so they go to check on Mrs. Mack and Heather. They find the bodies while the killer finds a nice stabby unicorn in the attic. Inside again, the killer bags Melissa. She escapes to a room and tries to get out the window, but it's stuck, so she beats the killer with a ski. The killer doesn't like that and cuts off her face with an ice skate. The killer gropes a sleeping Lauren, who seems into it when she's asleep, but definitely not into it when she wakes up. She tries to stab the unseen groper with a unicorn, proof that unicorn statues are inescapably stabby. She misses, and then a middle-aged man in a blonde wig strangles her and stabs her in the eye with the unicorn. That is a man, right? Downstairs, Kelly and Claire's sister see a figure stalking the porch, so they grab a mallow roaster and run upstairs. They decide to hide in Lauren's room, but she's too dead to help them. It turns out the skulking figure was Kyle, who's super chill about all the murders and has come back for no reason. And why did he come back? It didn't say why he came back. Why didn't he go home? Kelly calls Melissa's phone and they learn that the killer is in the attic and that another killer is also in the attic, which is a conclusion they jump to, even though it's correct. They make a stupid plan to go to the attic and run if there's dead people up there. Kyle carries a switchblade, which is why he goes up first. 
And you know what happens? He's bagged and dragged up. Duh. The killers had the high ground. Agnes kills Kyle with the unicorn. Thanks, Eve. In the attic, Claire's sister finally finds dead Claire, but not really, because she can barely see him and there's a bag over her head. Agnes pulls out Kyle's eyes and is also a man. Just, just clearly a man. Claire's sister falls through the attic floorboards for no reason. Die or don't die, like, I don't even care. Kill yourself. Agnes eats the eyeballs, then lights a candle, revealing a little murder shrine that says, You're my family now. Agnes bags Kelly, who stabs Agnes in the eye, but it's a false eye, so no damage. Kelly says, I'm not your family, and your brother's not here, but he is, actually, and comes up through the floorboards. This house should probably be condemned at this point. There is a lot of holes in here. There's a struggle, and Agnes falls into the wall. So does Kelly, but she catches herself on a beam somewhere on the first floor. Billy looks down at her. Agnes looks up. Claire's sister wakes up to Kelly screaming for help. The attic tree lights on fire because candles are just pure danger. Claire's sister breaks through the wall of the second floor, and Billy fails to strangle her through the wall. Claire's sister finds the right wall and gets her out just in time for the flaming tree to light up Billy. The ladies throw paint thinner on the flame and lock the door behind them, running into the snow. You'd think that's where the movie should stop, but no, it doesn't. At the hospital, they wheel Billy and Agnes into the morgue, but someone didn't do their job because they're both still alive. Kelly is in a hospital bed with a light head scratch and is taken to get some x-rays. Claire's sister stays in the room, but someone is somehow walking on the flimsiest ceiling tiles known to man. What kind of drop ceiling tiles are you hanging out on that are holding that much fucking weight? So she follows the noise. Kelly's room door closes behind her. She turns back. In the bed is Agnes, because of course, and snaps Claire's sister's neck. Kelly goes back to the room, unaware, but finds Claire's sister's blood on a watch. Blood drips into the light fixture and she hits the emergency button and struggles to get out. Agnes drops from the ceiling and Kelly gives her a zillion amps of electricity to the brain. She finally escapes the room, but Billy is in the hall. They struggle and she throws him down the stairs to get gored by a lobby tree. Mercifully, the end. I hope you people appreciate me, because I've watched this shitty fucking movie four times now. <laughs> Chase, I certainly appreciate you, because I've only watched it twice. Let's jump right into our ratings and tagline. You know, this film has a horrible tagline. This holiday season, the sleigh ride begins. No sleighs. There's not a single sleigh. Yeah, spoiler, no sleigh. I, I did just summarize the movie, but there's not a single sleigh. They never leave the house. Not even the costumes are sleighs. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 14%. Which is too high in my opinion. <laughs> IMDb gave it a 4.7 out of 10. And The Queers Have Eyes gave it a 4.3 out of 11, which is very generous. Our rating system really helped them out there. Yes, it did. How did we reach that number, you ask? We're going to tell you. Traumability, 11 out of 11. And uh, that's all I'm going to say. I'm very traumatized. Incest. Chase, how dumb is the protagonist? Uh, 8 out of 11. She's pretty dumb. She won't leave the house without Claire, even though she's definitely dead because the killer called from her cell phone. She thinks going up to the attic with 100% certainty that there are two murders at the top of a ladder is a solid plan. She dates a walking red flag. If she had tried to leave with Mrs. Mack and Lauren, they would have found Billy in the backseat and potentially overpowered him, so she fucked everybody. She didn't notice that there was a mountain troll walking around loudly in her house's attic for an indeterminate amount of time. Like, you can hear everything. Dumb. 
Halloween costume realness, we gave this a 1 out of 11. I'm saying, please wear Christmas pajamas and a horrible blonde wig. Uh, bonus points if you are 6 foot 5, and I will know who you are. But the more sane members of society will just think you're a basic white girl at Christmas time. Did you even go to Juilliard? 3 out of 11. Was it hard for these white girls to play white girls? They didn't utilize any of Gretchen Wiener's, Aunt Vula, or Harriet M. Welsh's comedic prowess. This envisioning lost every bit of charm that the original had. Daddy, is that you? 5.5 out of 11. Billy is a short king. We stand a short king. But Agnes is a mountain troll. Not Dan Frizz, the man who plays Agnes for no discernible reason, but um, as Agnes, troll. They, um... Obviously do both have an asphyxiation kink, so, you know, I had to give them some points for that. Streaming Cream, negative 2 out of 11, and it should, it should be lower. Lauren's Luscious Behind doesn't fix my permanent whiskey dick from the incest scene. If you're not bothered by incest, flip it on, but there's not a single plot point in this film you need to pay attention to if you just want the noise. <laughs> Jump Scares, 1 out of 11. Chase's favorite, the icicle murder of Miss Mac. Untraceable. (laughs) This, potentially my favorite moment of the film. Otherwise, all of the jump scares were for the characters and very heavily telegraphed for the audience. Can I make this with an iPhone? Six out of 11. There were definitely some interesting angles and the lighting design impeccable. But I'm going to say this is the only thing that's better than 1974. It would be hard, but uh, very doable. So am I. Scream Queens, 3 out of 11. The only screaming I did was at the stupidity of the characters and the laziness of the writers. Not out of fear, and um, these queens, they don't make me scream. Ghost face. 0 out of 11. Disappointment finds us in the use of opaque plastic bags for most of the murders. We don't get a great O face, and that, my friends, is the worst. Some pretty low scores, but... You know what isn't a low score? The Queers Have Eyes, where we've given it 11 out of 11. Here's 11 reasons why this film is queer. 1. Melissa gets a shower ready for Lauren and tries to catch her naked there. Gay. Gay. 2. Melissa puts Lauren to bed. Gay. Gay. Three, Agnes watches Lauren shower through a hole in the floor. Gay. Gay. Five. Four. Four, Agnes being played by a man is not trans representation. That's just poor casting. But Agnes's craft skills? Gay. Gay. Five, Lauren is a pedantic pagan killjoy. Gay. Gay. Six, the daughter of the inventor of the toaster strudel knows where the fuse box is. Gay. Gay. Seven, Mrs. Mack gets penetrated by an icicle. Gay. Gay. Eight. Kelly holds Lee's hand. Gay. Gay. Nine. The security guard bends over and is penetrated by hunky murderer Billy in his room. Gay. Gay. Ten. Eve gives Heather a pointy unicorn ornament that's definitely a dildo. Gay. Gay. Eleven. Kelly watches Claire get railed by her boyfriend. Gay. Gay. Classic gay. And with that, we've come to an 11 out of 11 for the Queers Have Eyes. That's it for the Queers Have Eyes this week. Join us next time when we discuss Black Christmas 2019. Special shout out to Danny, Ben, and Katrina Stewart for the technical feedback. You can catch them every Wednesday on their podcast, Comically Inclined, for all things nerd news. 
And if you like what you're hearing here, like and subscribe. Send a comment. Tell Richard they're beautiful. They like to hear that. That I do. And if you're still here listening, remember to keep your eyes open and stay queer. Slay.